Typically, when I fill in for our pastor, I, I pick a book to try to go through. We finished 2 Timothy the last time we were here together, and we're, we're starting a brand new book, um, a book that I've actually taught through before uh, that's a favorite of mine. Uh, and after praying about where to go and what to do, um, I believe the Lord would have us to be in the book of Ephesians uh, this morning. So Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be at. Uh, the book of Ephesians uh, is a favorite of many. Um, because it lays out uh, so clearly and so simply what we have as believers in Christ uh, and what we're supposed to do with what we have as believers in Christ. And in fact, that's the basic outline of the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 uh, explains who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ, the privileges of being in Christ, what it means, some of those truths we sang this morning. Also, uh, the last three chapters, uh, chapters four through six, explain to us what we're supposed to do with that information. Uh, it's not uh, too unlike what happens on your first day of work. Uh, they tell you a lot about the company, what they expect uh, you to behave like, and who you are now as an employee of this new, new business that you're, you're working at. And then after that, they tell you what to do and when to do it um, and exactly how to do and express uh, those you know, values and behaviors, uh, the, expressing those values through behaviors. And as believers, um, there's a lot that we have in Christ. And for three chapters, Paul just lays it out, uh, who you are uh, from God's perspective as a believer, the things that you have, the privileges that you have are laid out in the first three chapters. And then the last three chapters, again, how we're supposed to live for Christ. What, having these things, what are we supposed to do with these things? Uh, and they're not unrelated. Um, for instance, we, we have been called. And then the very beginning of chapter four, he says, walk worthy of that calling <laughs> that you have. Um, it's a direct one-to-one -one correlation. You have this, now go do something with that. Um, and so the book of Ephesians really lays out a lot of those things. Uh, we're going to read the first two whole verses together. So if you have your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 1, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is what we're going to read together. It's going to be up on the big screen, but if you want to follow along with me as I read it to you out loud, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, uh, which is able to speak to uh, the issues of our hearts, to divide between thoughts and intents of our minds. Uh, Lord, it's so good to us. You, you describe your word as, as food for our soul, as a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Lord, it shows us where we're at and where we need to go. We pray this morning that your word would have its work in each one of us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, the, uh, the book of Ephesians does what Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, uh, I has not seen, nor ear heard, 
nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And the book of Ephesians is a fulfillment of what Paul is writing about there in 1 Corinthians, uh, where he, he lays out for us. Um, if you're following along or taking notes, uh, I have two titles <laughs> for our sermon this morning. Uh, the first is a fairly basic one. Christians have been changed by Christ. Um, that's what makes Christianity different than every other religion out there. I was just watching a, a YouTube video the other day on a guy who read 300 self-help books, and he was giving his three-point summaries of what he learned from reading 300 self-help books. Uh, the Bible was not one of those, because the Bible is not a self-help book. The Bible is a Christ-help book. <laughs> the help you need, only Christ can provide. And so today's sermon title captures that, where Christians have been changed by Christ, uh, and it will be a part of an ongoing series for chapters 1, 2, and 3, um, in which I've titled, uh, Who Do You Think You Are?, uh, sometimes that's said with um, malice or you know argumentativeness. Uh, sometimes it's a question you ask yourself: "Is like, who am I? <laughs> what am I? What, what am I supposed to do here in this situation?" Um, and the Bible has an answer to that question of who do you think you are? Uh, and it's not Pastor Austin's perspective. It's not Pastor Art's perspective. It's uh, the perspective of God's Word. It's God's perspective on who He thinks you are. And the first perspective of that is given to us in the first two verses, believe it or not, uh, where we see um, the, the three points I have for us is that Paul was changed by Christ, and then the Ephesians were changed by Christ, and lastly, we see that God's grace brings about this change through Christ. So first, Paul was changed by Christ. Uh, the very first word of this uh, short letter is Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Uh, if you don't know who Paul was, Paul was an apostle, like he says, but he wasn't always an apostle. He wasn't the son of an apostle. He didn't grow up, you know, thinking someday I'll be an apostle. You know, that's, you know, he wasn't in his kindergarten class writing, I'm going to be an apostle when I grow up. That, that wasn't what he was. Uh, if you were an outside observer of Paul's life uh, and like some outside observers of my own life, uh, you may uh, have described him as, quote-unquote, always being religious. Uh, Paul was always religious uh, in one sense. Uh, for those who weren't religious of their day, Paul was always religious. He grew up in a religious family. He had a religious schooling. And his whole life, he was, quote-unquote, religious. Uh, but it wasn't always Christianity that he was uh, involved in. And Paul, and when he was give his own testimony in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, he says, I was brought up in this city, speaking about Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel. He was the leading teacher of the day, uh, the, the, the number one uh, Jewish scholar of Judaism. That's where Paul got his training from. He says, taught according to the strictness of our fathers and was zealous toward God uh, as you all are today. He would describe himself in Philippians chapter 3 as a Hebrew of Hebrews and concerning the law of Pharisee. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 14, he said, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the, for the traditions of my fathers. He was a very religious man before he became a Christian. 
so much so that he was on missionary trips <laughs> so that he could persecute Christians. Uh, his view of Christianity was not a good one uh, when it first became a thing. And he was the reason why many Christians were leaving Jerusalem, because he was taking them and putting them in jail, not just the men, but the women and children as well. And that's what he had in his hands when he was on his way to a foreign city. He was on his way to Damascus, and the Lord changed his life. Paul's life hadn't always been filled with doing the will of God. In this letter, he's, he's saying he's an apostle by the will of God, but his life wasn't always filled with doing the will of God, even though his life could always be described as being religious and zealously so. Paul, in his letter to his second Timothy, warned about not doing the will of God, but he describes it not just as not doing the will of God, but by doing the will of someone else. Uh, when it comes to correcting and redirecting fellow believers, e even those who are way far off, the way Paul described that was that when you bring that correction, what you're doing for them, the service that you're providing to them, the goal with which you're correcting them. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, he says, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now, as a believer, you may have been aware that God has a will for your life, but he's not the only one that has a will for your life. And before Paul's life was filled with doing the will of God for his life, his life was filled with doing the will of the devil. <laughs> There's not really any kind of middle ground on that. Uh, later in Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to describe how we were all once under the power and the sway of the prince of the pow power of the air of this world. There are two kinds of people in the world, those who are doing God's will and those who are not those who are not aren't doing their own will. The will that they're doing is the will of the devil. And that's what Paul's life was filled with before he became a Christian. Um, it was a fair, fairly sharp contrast uh, in his life. Uh, in fact, when that change took place, uh, it was, um, it's described to us as a first-time encounter, and Paul would share his testimony many times after this, but the first time that it happened to him is recorded in the book of Acts, this change where he went from his will to God's will uh, is recorded in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. It says that he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Uh, another believer in that city was spoken to by God, and it's like, hey, I want you to go talk to this guy named Saul of Tarshish, Paul. And he's like, God, I've heard of him. I don't want to go talk to him. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's here to you know, throw me in jail. And God was like, no, I already talked to him about that. He's not going to do that anymore. I want you to go talk to him, and this is what I want you to tell him, because he's a chosen vessel of mine who will go and speak to kings, to Gentiles, and to the Jewish people. And basically, he's going to be an apostle for me. And so Ananias, the guy who heard this, he's like, are you sure, Lord? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, all right. The first words out of his mouth are, Brother Paul, because his father had changed. Right? 
the privilege we have of one another is to acknowledge the work that God does in each other's life, calling each other brother and sister because our Father is in heaven. And that change took place on a single day, but the change was <coughs> expressed in two questions. Who are you, Lord? Lord, what do you want me to do? He went from doing his will and the will of another to the will of the Lord, and he was asking for it. He was saying, Lord, what, it is, what is it that you want me to do? And expressly, that's what a Christian is. It's not just an apostle, but it's every believer a believer should be saying to the Lord, Lord, who are you? And that's a question we answer and continue to answer as we get to know the Lord more and more. Every day as I read my Bible, I'm getting to know the Lord a little bit more than I did yesterday. Sometimes he's just reminding me of things that I once knew and I forgot. Other times it's he is showing me some new aspect of who he is. But in addition to that, it's, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that's the right construction of that sentence. It's not, Lord, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It'd be like going to your boss and be like, I don't want to do what you say. And like, I don't think you understand the nature of our relationship here. <laughs> I am paying you to do what I say. That's how this works. We can't call the Lord, Lord, and then not do what he says. That's um, common. It was even common in Jesus's day. Jesus said, why do you say, call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? This doesn't make any sense. What makes him Lord is that we Ask him, what do you want me to do? And then we go do it. It's not super complicated in that way, but this happened all in one conversation with Paul. I'm not sure if this has happened with you yet. Perhaps you've given the Lord your sins so that he can save you from them, but you have yet to give him your life. And that's what the Lord wants. He, when he was rescuing the people of Israel out of the nation of uh, Egypt. Everybody remembers what Moses was telling him, let my people go. But that's not the only thing that he said. Everybody remembers that part. Let my people go. He follows it up. There's a follow-up sentence to that sentence, that they may worship me. It's not, a free, it's not freedom from slavery for the sake of freedom from slavery. It's freedom for service. Uh, a new master, a new lord, a good lord, a lord that is caring and concerned about us. So Paul knew on the day he got saved, on the day he got saved, somebody came to him and said, Brother Paul, and then told him, God's going to use you to testify of the goodness of the gospel to Gentiles, to kings, and to Jewish people. He knew on the day he got saved what God's will for his life was. Super convenient, right? <laughs> I'm not sure if that was your experience if on the day you got saved, you knew exactly what God wanted you to do with the rest of your life. That's not the typical experience. But for Paul, he knew the what of God's will for his life on the day that he got saved. But there was a gap between the what of what God had called him to and the when. When is not in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, he does go and he shares the gospel and he confuses everybody um, the, the testimony that he, he got was immediately people were like, isn't he the guy <laughs> that was trying to destroy the thing and now he's trying to build the thing that he was trying to, isn't that the guy? That was his testimony. <laughs> it was really confusing to a lot of people for a while. Uh, even some of the apostles were like, eh, I'm not too sure. This isn't a trap. And so he 
he was confusing to some people. He was immediately preaching the gospel, immediately proving that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, but there isn't a single convert recorded in that. Perhaps there were. I'm just saying that there isn't any recorded converts of Paul's preaching at that time, where he immediately went into the synagogues, proving that Jesus was the Christ from the scriptures, uh, something he would do with for the rest of his life. It wasn't until about 11 years later. Think about that. 11 years. Just say you don't know what God's called you to, and then today you know God has called me to this, and then you have to wait 11 years. That's a long time. Paul knew on the day he got saved what he was called to do, and then was zealously going about doing it. (laughs) 11 years later, in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, uh, we're told, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He knew, Paul knew, in Acts chapter 9, 11 years earlier, before Acts chapter 13, what he was called to do. Uh, But there was a gap between the what and the when. And sometimes that's important. And God's always purposeful in that. Um, It's not something that is unique to Paul's life either. Um, Abraham... Father Abraham, you know him. He had many sons. Many sons had father. You know know the song. That Abraham, before he had many sons, God told him at age 75, you're going to have many sons. And he's like, well, I have no sons. And he's like, you're going to have many sons. Count the stars if you can. And then that'll be a close approximation of how many kids you're going to have. I'm like, wow, that's that's a lot. (laughs) 25 years later, God fulfilled that word. He knew it was God's will for his life to have many sons. And 25 years later, God gave him the son of promise. That's a long time to wait. God waited, in fact, until he knew, Abraham knew, that he couldn't do it. It would have to be a miracle. Like, God, in fact, when God told him, like, hey, the promise is going to come true next year, he laughed. So they named their son Laughter. (laughs) what Isaac means. Like, this is kind of funny. Everybody who hears about this is going to be like, that's kind of funny. (laughs) And what it was, it was going to be obvious that God had done the work. Moses knew what God's will for his life was at age 40. Rescue the people of Israel. The people of Israel were like, who are you? Who made you Lord and captain over us? And he and Moses unsuccessfully buried one Egyptian in the sand. Like, oh no, everybody's going to find out and kill me. And then he ran away. And he was in the wilderness, shepherding sheep for 40 years until he was confident that he could never deliver the children of Israel. And then God was like, you're ready. Because <laughs> now you know you can't do it. <laughs> Just like Abraham. <laughs> now you know you can't do it. And, and Moses and God's conversation is kind of an interesting one. If you've read the story, you know it. Moses was like, I don't want to. And God was like, I didn't ask you if you wanted to. He's like, hey, God, I've got a great idea. How about you ask somebody else? He's like, I don't want to ask anybody else. I'm like, but God, I can't talk. And he's like, who made your tongue? (laughs) I did. (laughs) Just go and do it. He was very confident that he didn't want to do it anymore, that he couldn't do it, that it was impossible for him to do it. And God was like, I'm ready ready to use you now. Uh, King David, anointed king, seven years before he would rule over (laughs) anyone, Uh, In the meantime, it wasn't like he was being groomed to be a king. 
he was uh, being groomed to be a long-distance runner, uh, spear dodger. <laughs> the other king was trying to kill him actively, <laughs> even though he was trying to serve him. And so it seems like it's common for, uh, for us as believers that God would make clear to us what God wants for us, for that dream to be alive in us, to die in us, and then God would raise it back up again. But then we would know, even if everybody else didn't know, we would know, God, this is you. Everybody else might be like, wow, they were so ready. <laughs> we're like, yeah, we were ready because we knew we weren't ready. That's how ready we were. <laughs> That's the only ready we were ready was, I know I can't do this. So when the what and the when came together, Paul was ready. And it's out of that readiness that he was, he's writing this. He is saying that he is what he is, not because he thought it was a good idea or that somebody else thought it was a great idea. Like, hey, you know, I think Paul, wouldn't he be a great apostle to the Gentiles? I mean, he's, he grew up in Judaism, um, but shouldn't we send him to the Gentiles? Nobody thought that. They thought they were, you know, maybe he was just trying to trick them. Paul didn't think that. He was persecuting the church. He was holding the coats of those who killed the first martyr in the church. He held the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. If anything, you know, I, I'm not sure if we, you know, ever got to the point where Pastor Art's retiring and we're interviewing new pastors and we're like, well, let's see what's on this guy's resume. Used to kill Christians. Yeah, we should go with that guy. <laughs> Maybe send him out as a representative of us everywhere. <laughs> this is a great plan. <laughs> no. <laughs> Like, that would be like, yeah, wait, maybe, maybe he could be the janitor. Have him clean stuff and do stuff where nobody knows he's the one. Paul was what he was, not because he thought he should do it or anybody else. Paul was what he was because that's what God wanted him to be. And that's not just exclusive to apostles. That's for each one of us. I'm a manager by the will of the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I am where I am because that's where God wants me to be. God wants me to be a witness <laughs> to the people of Valley Springs at CVS. I'm a full-time missionary there. CVS pays the bill. <laughs> I'm not sure where you're a missionary at, <laughs> and I'm not sure who's paying that bill. But here's the deal. If your life is an expression of what God wants, Wherever you are, that's God's will for you. There was, there was times in my life where I'm like, Lord, I'm, I've been a janitor for the Lord <laughs> at Lowe's. And then I was like, Lord, I think I need to be a manager because this janitor pay is good, but I've got another baby on the way. So, <laughs> Lord, what's your will here? So the Lord opened up doors, and I don't know what the will of the Lord is for your life in particular, but it doesn't have to have a church title for it to be the will of the Lord. And I know it because I'm living it. <laughs> it's the will of the Lord for Austin to be a manager over at CBS. And there's great joy in knowing that what you're doing with your life is what God wants you to be doing with your life. CBS tries to drum up this you know, purpose and everything else. And like, I know why I'm there. And it's not because of the purposes that CBS have in mind. I'm there because that's where God wants me to be. And there's no greater joy than knowing that you're right where God wants you to be.
For Paul, it was an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent out with a message. Um, not unlike the prophets of the Old Testament, um, the apostles were uh, with Jesus, the, the original 11 that were sent out by Jesus one at a time. He called them to follow them right away. At the very beginning of his ministry, these guys were sitting in tax booths, <laughs> collecting taxes, cleaning nets, even though they didn't catch any fish. <laughs> and he's like, hey, you, follow me. And it was the same for Paul. Paul had just gotten saved, and God was like, hey, you, follow me. I'm going to send you out. And Paul spent time with the Lord and was sent out by the Lord with a message from the Lord. And that message is the message of the gospel, but the people he was sent to, in particular, were the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile, so he's our apostle. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for thinking of us and sending to us Paul. Uh, he explains this in further detail in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the nature of his calling and the grace that was expressed in that calling. But that calling wasn't just a calling that he received from the Lord. It was a calling that was also affirmed by other believers. Again, in um, Acts chapter 13, the Lord spoke not just to Paul, but to everybody else. I'm like, hey, everybody else, it's Paul's time. This calling was affirmed, and Paul describes this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7 and 9. He says, but uh, when they saw, that is the other apostles, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised Gentiles had been committed to me as the gospel to the circumcised, the Jewish people, was, had, had been committed to Peter, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, or it's a euphemism for the Jewish people. And so this calling was affirmed by the believers around them, the other leaders who were there. Uh, not unlike how uh, we raise up pastors in Calvary Chapel Valley Springs, which is we see somebody who's got a call on their life, they're walking in that call, and we're like, hey, we think God's called you to this thing. Uh, it's important to us to give you this official title because it, it entrusts to you the authority uh, to speak certain things, but it's also an accountability thing. If you don't do these things <laughs> that you ought to be doing, we're going to hold you accountable to that. And so Paul took his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles very seriously. He went on many mission trips. He planted many churches. One of the churches he visited was the church in Ephesus. The Ephesians, like Paul, Paul had been changed by Christ. The Ephesians had also been changed by Christ. Now, in the original manuscripts, some of uh, the er earliest manuscripts that we have of the book of Ephesians, it just has a line <laughs> where it says Ephesians. Uh, like, it was an open letter, if you would, to the churches. <laughs> and then you could write in your own church name. It, it was kind of a circular letter, is what they think that blank space means. Uh, now, Ephesus was certainly a good place to, to write a letter like that. When we think of uh, ancient cities, we don't think of very big cities, maybe something the size of Valley Springs, but uh, Ephesus was huge. There was a quarter million people in Ephesus at the time Paul wrote this letter. Uh, it was a very, very large city. They had a uh, stadium uh, where Paul wanted to go into <laughs> to um, share the gospel where he, it was a riot that he started basically <laughs> by doing so much gospel ministry that it was affecting the local worship of idols. 
And the, the guys who made idols were like, hey, this guy's going to put us out of business. And that, that caused a riot where uh, about 25 to 30,000 people could fit into this arena. And they jam-packed that arena to chant, great is uh, Diana of the Ephesians, the, the, the god of the city that was there. And they were there because Paul had preached the gospel there long enough and loud enough and clear enough to where Paul did what he did in most cities, which is go preach the gospel, either cause mass revival or mass riots, or preach the gospel until a riot happened. And go preach the gospel, riot, leave. And that was kind of Paul's uh, mode of operations. And so the city of Ephesus was certainly an important city, certainly a city that would have had many smaller churches in it. Um, but the letter itself doesn't necessarily address any particular issue in the city of Ephesus. And so even the contents of the letter suggest that it was meant to be read, read by all Christians everywhere at the time Paul wrote it. A hint of this perhaps is in the book of Colossians where he said, read also the letter that I've written to uh, the Laodiceans. And we're like, we don't have a letter from Paul from, to the Laodiceans. And perhaps he's referring to this letter here, which would make sense because if you've read Ephesians, and you've read Colossians, you're like, wow, these are very similar books. <laughs> They're laid out very similarly. One addresses one issue more particularly, but this book presents the whole gospel um, quite clearly as far as what we need to think about ourselves and how we're supposed to live as believers. And so Paul's writing to a church um, that's very large, that's very spread out, and perhaps we could even write to the church of Valley Springs, but that's not how he, he addresses it, right? He says, to the saints. Uh, there are some churches um, that view saints as only people who have uh, completed three miracles that have been verified in their life and are now currently dead. <laughs> Paul is not writing to dead people who have completed miracles. He says, to the saints who are. Those are living people. Those are people he's going to explain the gospel to. Those are people he's going to apply the gospel to. He's going to say, hey, this is what you should be doing with this message of the gospel and the way that you conduct your life. And so in the same way that he could say to the saints who are in Ephesus, he could say to the saints who are in Valley Springs. That would be us. I'm not sure if you think about yourself or if, the, if you were in a job interview and they didn't have any questions prepared, so they're like, uh... Tell me about yourself. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm a saint. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's your go-to. <laughs> this is the first description that's given to us about who we are in Christ. Saints. Uh, it's an adjective that's it's a reference to a person or thing that is holy in the sense that it's been set apart. It's a term that was used in the Old Testament to describe uh, the first covenant people. We're second covenant people. The first covenant is the covenant God made with Abraham, and the covenant people there were holy people. They were holy people because they were set aside for God. They were sanctified. They were set apart for special use that couldn't be used for anything else. Um, all of the articles that were used in the temple were holy because they were supposed to only be used in the temple. Um, I guess the, the best illustration I can remember from teaching junior hires, so this is a junior hire illustration, 
I apologize up front, is, is your toothbrush is sanctified because it is yours. It is not anybody else's. <laughs> you don't use that to clean the grout in your bathroom. You don't use it to clean any dishes. You don't even let other people in your house use it. It's yours. It belongs to you. <laughs> it's sanctified. It's set apart for you. Uh, the process of sanctification sometimes is also has in mind uh, something closer to another junior high illustration of uh, uh, washing dishes. So when you wash your dishes, um, I, I assume you are like me and have many dishes at home on a regular basis. Some of you have a, a sanctification machine, I mean a, a dishwasher. <laughs> and you just throw it in there and it sanctifies it. Um, but when we wash our dishes in my house, and I assume the same is true in yours, is that after you wash it, you don't just put it back on the table or if you have pets who clean your dishes for you before you put it in the sink, is you don't put it back down on the floor. You don't put it back out on the table. You put it in some place where it will stay sanctified, <laughs> right? Until it's ready to be used again. And we are more like dishes in the sense that uh, we are constantly being washed by the water of the word. Uh, and we're constantly being set aside for his use. Uh, and we're constantly in that process. It's a never-ending process, just like laundry and dishes. <laughs> if you have kids, you, you, you think you're done. And then you walk out and you're like, where did this come from? Or you sit on your couch and you reach behind a cushion and you're like, that's where this plate has been. <laughs> I just, I, I was wondering where it went. In the same way, uh, we are saints because God is the one who sanctifies us. You are a saint because God has set you aside as a second covenant believer, as someone who is saved. And that's the second adjective that's there. Um, if you notice there, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Another way that same word can be translated is believing ones or believers. And basically what he's saying is believers are saints and saints are believers. If you believe in Jesus as your savior. If you believe the message of the gospel, then you are a saint, is what this scripture is saying. So the Ephesians had been changed by Christ. They did not read a self-help book. The message that Paul preached to them was not a self-help message. It wasn't a motivational speaking engagement that Paul was on or a tour he was on. He would preach the gospel and it was such good news that they were like, hey, can you come back next week and preach the same message? It's a message that's worth repeating. It's a message that Paul preached repeatedly. And it was a message that was offensive to some because what it said was, you need Christ to change you. You are so messed up <laughs> that you need God in your life. And some of us came to Christ with a full understanding of that. We're like, yep, that's why I'm here. <laughs> I am the one who is messed up. <laughs> you are the one who fixed, messes up people. <laughs> Please do what you do. <laughs> I am messed up. There are others who, like Paul, didn't realize how messed up they were until God had to literally pull them aside, throw them on the ground, and say, stop. <laughs> you are not as righteous as you think you are. And in fact, you're persecuting me. He told him twice. He's like, stop persecuting me. And he's like, who are you, Lord? He's like, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. <laughs> I'm not sure if you've noticed, but Jesus wasn't around when 
Jesus said that to Paul. That was years after. And, and Jesus said, you're persecuting not the church. He said, you're persecuting me. And that's one of the major themes of the book of Ephesians. When, when he says you're faithful, the faithfulness, the believing, means that you are in Christ. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever had anybody poke you in the eye. I've got three little boys, and eye pokes happen all the time. Oh, it was an accident. I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> then why do you walk up to them like this? <laughs> um, they're very hard to ignore. I'm not sure if you've ever been successful in ignoring an eye poke. I have not been. Uh, none of my boys have been. Uh, the Lord describes his covenant people in the Old Testament as the apple of his eye, the very center part of your eye. And God tells, <laughs> tells Paul, hey, you're, po- you're poking me in the eye. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> God takes notice about what's going on in his church and to his church because he identifies with his church not from a distance. He identifies them as if they are a part of his body. And in fact, that's, that's a message that Paul talks about. We're part of the body of Christ. He says, some of you are eyes. <laughs> I used to poke you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> he, he, underst- he understands something about our relationship with Christ, that, the, that our identity is now lost in his identity to the point where he could look at Ephesians, and if he knew about us Valley Springians, and say, saints, because you're in Christ. Because you're a believer in who Jesus is and what he's done. That change took place because of God's grace. God's grace brings Christians the peace of God. That's part of the change that he brings. And that's what he says in his short introduction. It's a a staple of all Paul's letters. Grace to you, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Uh, It was something Paul would write in almost all of his letters to the churches. He would add when he's writing to pastors, grace, mercy, and peace, because he knows if pastors need anything, it's mercy. <laughs> but grace and peace, uh, grace is a kind of, it's a play on words. The, the Greek greeting of the day, how we say, you know, good day or hello, the Greek greeting of the day was very similar in the Greek language to the word grace. And so, Paul kind of borrows that sound of the word and changes it uh, from one word to the word grace, where it was greetings was the common, you know, Greek greeting. He changed it to grace to you. And peace. Peace is the, was the common Hebrew greeting, uh, shalom. Uh, it's how they would greet one another in the Hebrew culture. What they were doing was pronouncing the blessing of God's peace upon them because they were a part of God's covenant people. And so Paul borrows these two greetings and kind of smashes them together. And it's grace to you and peace from God our Father. 
These two things work together, though. We have the peace of God because of the grace of God. The grace is always first, and the peace is what follows. This peace is a unique blessing to believers, to those in a right relationship with God. And Paul describes how we have come to have access to this peace in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Later in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he says, by grace you have been saved through faith. So before even that faith, faith is there, it's the grace. And because we have been justified by faith through grace, we have peace with God. There's a lot of things you can buy in this world, and there's a lot of ways you can improve yourself through self-help books but none of them are so audacious to offer the peace of God. That's one of the big holes in, in all of those books. Is it, It's what most people are after, is a peace of mind, a peace that's ruling in their hearts and their minds. And he's, he's saying that this peace is something we have access to by grace, not through the work we do, but through the work that Christ has already done. This is, again, something that makes Christianity unique. If you want to be reap the benefits of all of the other blessings in any other religion, it's work that you do. If you want to attain nirvana, then you've got to do all of these other things. A Christian was once asked in a group of many different religions, like, what makes Christianity unique? And he's like, oh, that's easy. Grace. <laughs> all you all are working <laughs> to get what you got. The work has already been done for us. Grace. It's, a, it's a God's riches at Christ's expense. It's an acronym for the whole word. <laughs> G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. He's done the work. He's obtained the blessings. We get the results of his work. We get to have the blessings of his faithfulness because God knew we could never do that. The Old Testament is a testament to the fact we couldn't do that. If, if peace with God could be had through the works of the law, Christ wouldn't have come. And Christ came, because it was not possible. There's no good work you can do to earn God's peace, because God's peace comes through God's grace. Does that mean that Christians always and forever have peace and are never anxious? No. <laughs> it means we have access to a peace that the world doesn't have access to. The scripture gives us pretty straightforward uh, direction on what to do when we have the things that are the opposite of peace. Uh, anxiety, being anxious, um, Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, uh, be anxious. You're like, yay, I can do that. Uh, but he continues <laughs> to read it in context. Be anxious for nothing. I'm like, oh. <laughs> but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. I want us to think for a moment about how we're anxious. Uh, I would do a survey, but just mentally raise up your hands. You don't have to actually raise up your hands, but in your mind, raise your hand if, if any of these things you're, you're capable of. Uh, waking up in the morning before you even get out of bed and being anxious. Being anxious and making your cup of coffee, being anxious and even talking to your spouse, being anxious while you drive, being anxious while you work, being anxious while you offer excellent customer service, <laughs> being anxious on your drive home, even though it's a short drive. <laughs> you can be anxious always. How that happens is you're thinking about the problem or the issue and how you or your friends or your family might resolve that, your bank account, your calendar, whatever the issue is requiring of you. But in the same way we can be anxious and do all of those things, we can also do what Paul says here, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The difference that we have that the unbeliever does not have is that when we have problems that are bigger than us, we don't face them alone. We don't look to our bank account. We don't look to our calendar. We don't look to our family or friends to be the final and ultimate you know, resolution to the issue that we're having. We have God as a part of that conversation. So in the same way we can wake up in the morning and be anxious, we can take an opportunity to take those anxieties to the Lord in prayer, and we can pray when we wake up and we're in bed. We can pray as we make our cup of coffee. We can pray and even have a conversation with our spouse because we can be anxious while we're doing all of those things too. <laughs> all we're doing is we're including God in the conversation. And what we're acknowledging is, Lord, I don't have this. I can't do this. God, this problem is bigger than I am. But you know what? I want my day to be full of your will and not my will. And in the same way that when I'm at work, I'm trying to do the will of CVS, like, hey, we want you to do this, this, and this. When I have a giant pallet of water that I need to move, and I'm like, I can't move that by myself. Luckily, CVS has, powered, has provided me a power forklift where I can just you know, drive into it, pick it up, drive it around, bam. When I have needs that are bigger than me at CVS, CVS is the one responsible for providing me those needs because they're the ones who want me to do what they want me to do. And if they want me to do it, they're going to give me the things I need to do it. It's my need, but it's their responsibility to fill that need if I'm serving them. If you're serving the Lord, the needs you have are your needs. But it's the Lord's responsibility to fill those needs because he's the one who wants you to be successful in the, fulfilling the will, his will for your life. Lord, help me be a better husband. <laughs> help me to be more present with my kids. Lord, I know you want that. Lord, I can't do that. Lord, help me to stay up late for this conversation with my wife. She really needs me to have it. <laughs> Lord, you know I'm tired. <laughs> help my thoughts to be coherent and my eyes to remain open so she knows I'm paying attention. <laughs> Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> that's a prayer the Lord wants to answer. You know why? Because that's the Lord's will for my life. 
The needs I have are great, but the Lord's ability to meet those needs are greater. The peace that he provides for believers many times comes through an exchange, a process called prayer, where you make known your needs to him, not because he does not know you have them, but it's a way for you to let go of them and give them to the Lord. You're going to be in one of three spots with relationship to this kind of prayer. You're either at the beginning of that and you, you know it. <laughs> You're like, Lord, help me now. <laughs> You're already praying while I'm preaching. It's okay. You can do that. You're at the end of that where the Lord has answered that prayer for you. You're like, Lord, thank you for getting me through that. Or you're at the beginning of a, of a trial that you're not aware of. You're in one of those three spots. <laughs> but we all constantly go through that. And it's so that we would grow in our trust in the Lord. All of these things are possible because of what it says at the end of verse 2 there. Because they are from our Father. That's a term that is only used of those who have a relationship with God. God is our father if we have a relationship with him. Not, not everybody can call God their father because not everybody has a right relationship with God. God is the God of everyone, but God is not the father of everyone. We have peace with God because of the grace of God. If you've never experienced that peace, God wants that peace to rule in your heart and mind. If you have read 300 self-help books <laughs> in chasing that peace, how's that going for you? If you're trying to enjoy the blessings of God apart from a relationship with God, it's not going to work. But a relationship with God is free. So if you're a new believer here, God has a call on your life. There is a will of God for you. We have peace from God because of the work of Christ, not our own. Receiving God's grace comes before walking in peace with him. And as a believer, we can exchange anxieties for peace through prayer. If you're a mature believer and you already know these things, you know that God has a call on your life, but are you walking in it? I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to another pastor, nonetheless, uh, to Timothy. He said, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, but give yourself to that gift. Let that be the word of the Lord to you. And in order to do that, Sometimes you have to say no to other things in order to say yes to the things that God has for you. You can't really say yes to God's call on your life until you say no to the things that keep you from that call. If you're here this morning or in the sound of my voice watching online and you would describe yourself as not a believer, I've described a lot of blessings that believers have. And I just want to say, friend, How's your pursuit of peace going? You're doing all of the things that the world is telling you to do, but do you have peace? God's will for you, God has a will for you if you're unbelieving, and that is to be believing. 
God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's will for you. How you get there is admitting and confessing and believing. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. That's the promise that we have. That's the promise we stand on. It's the work that Christ has done. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer, and maybe the worship team will come up and uh, lead us in a song. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us, for the peace that we can have, uh, for the fact that we can say that we have been sanctified and are being sanctified because of the work that you do and are doing. Lord, I pray for my friends, my brothers and, and sisters in Christ who are here this morning. Lord, that if they don't know what you have called them to, Lord, that you would be speaking even now. Lord, that as you spoke so clear to Paul, that uh, you would speak to them this morning about what your will for their life is. Lord, I pray for my older brothers and sisters in Christ who know these things. Lord, that they would be exhorted to walk in them. Lord, that they would not just know the call on their life, but that they would, when the wind comes, would walk in the call. Lord, for those who don't know you, Lord, that the whole that's in their heart, Lord, that they would know that it can be filled, but it can only be filled by you. Lord, you've given us physical hunger. You've given us physical thirst, physical tiredness to know as a reminder that we are weak, that we are needy. But Lord, those all pale in comparison to our lives apart from you. Lord, we are hungry for you. We are thirsty for you. You are our rest. You are our peace. Lord, we pray uh, that we would be filled uh, with your spirit today. Lord, that it would be expressed in our lives in peace this week. We ask this in Jesus' name.